If you have a Bible, if you could please open up to Colossians chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, there's Bibles in the seat pockets uh, or the seat backs, and whatever you call them, underneath the seat in front of you. It's also going to be projected up there if you'd like to follow along that way. So as we continue our study in the book of Colossians this morning, we're going to see that Paul goes from very theological, very theologically driven text to very pastoral. Paul started off the book of Colossians very theologically, as theologically as any first chapter of any book in the Bible. Each verse has been so dense and so full of great Christology. Paul was really trying to give the Colossian church a firm foundation of who Jesus truly is, both to give them what they need to be able to grow, as we see in our passage, to a mature manhood in Christ, but also to correct some errors that had slipped into the Colossian church. But now he's going to get into some really pastoral stuff, and you're going to get to see that this is no mere ivory tower theologian, but a true shepherd of the flock, and you get to see his pastoral heart for this precious body put on display uh, we have one of the more difficult verses to interpret in the New Testament in this passage, one of those verses that remind you of the value of teaching verse by verse through books of the Bible, because if you're only choosing things to teach on topically, you'd probably skip over this verse because it's awkward and a little bit difficult to understand. But like most things with God... If you take the time to press into it, if you take the time to be like Jacob when he wrestled with the Lord and say, I will not let go of you until you bless me, you're going to leave with a bigger view of God than if you didn't bother to wrestle at all. The verse that I'm speaking of is the very first verse in this morning's passage, picking up where we left off last week, verse 24, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body that is the church. It's an awkward verse. It's a verse that I remember listening to a mentor of mine, a guy that I love downloading his sermons, and I've been privileged to be able to be taught by him as well. And I heard him preach on this passage years ago, and I'll never forget what he said when he got to this verse. He said, it's profound, and it's beautiful, and it kind of boggles the mind, and it fills me with wonder, but that being said, I'm not exactly sure what it means. Well, I appreciate his honesty, but it doesn't help me this morning that somebody that I esteem as uh, sharper biblically than myself didn't have an easy time interpreting it. But isn't it admirable when somebody tells you, I'm going to give it my best shot. I don't, here's a few different ways you can interpret this. This is why I see it this way, but really, I'm kind of stuck on this one. I'll take that. 10 times out of 10 over somebody just fudging it and shoehorning a meaning into a text that doesn't really belong there. I appreciated his honesty, and I agree with my brother who said that it's a tough verse. So I hope to trend towards humility, but he's also right about the fact that it's beautiful 
and it presents something beautiful about Jesus and about Paul's heart for Jesus. And as I dug in, it became clearer to me that God has something for us, but the best way that I can explain it, sometimes the best way that you can explain a difficult truth is by a story or an illustration. And this story is about a great woman named Harriet Tubman. Harriet was a really devout Christian woman born into slavery in 1822, and the accounts known from the history books almost never happened on many occasions. She was almost taken out, but one of her most vicious came when she was almost killed by a slave owner that fractured her skull when he hit her in the head with a metal weight. The account goes, these are from um, Harriet's biographer, one day the adolescent Tubman was sent to a dry goods store for supplies. There she encountered a slave owner owned by another family who had just left the fields without permission. His overseer, furious, demanded that she help restrain him. She refused, and as he ran away, the overseer threw a two-pound metal weight at him. He struck her instead, which she said broke my skull. Bleeding and unconscious, she was returned to her owner's house and laid on the seat of a loom where she remained without medical care for two days. She was sent back into the fields, quote, with blood and sweat rolling down my face until I could not see. Her boss said that she was no longer worth even six pence and returned her to the marketplace and tried unsuccessfully to sell what he considered to be damaged goods. She began having seizures and would seemingly fall unconscious, although she claimed to be aware of her surroundings while appearing to be asleep. These episodes became alarming to her family, who were unable to wake her up when she would fall asleep, and suddenly and without warning, they would come upon her. This condition remained with her for the rest of her life. It was suggested that she may have suffered from what doctors call today temporal lobe epilepsy as a result of the head injury. All that Harriet had ever known was life as a slave. And then something happened. On September 17, 1849, she got her first taste of freedom. It was a taste that she was created for, being a person created in the image of God. She was not created for bondage, but she had been kept in bondage and kept from freedom her entire life. She traveled the Underground Railroad and was aided by Christian abolitionists along the way. She traveled over 90 miles through heavily wooded area, through marshlands, almost entirely on foot, having to make several stops along the way, pretending that she was a slave at the house of several of these Christian abolitionists so that if anybody stepped in, they did not see her as an escaped convict running for her life and to throw off the bounty hunters who were people whose jobs were to go and find runaway slaves and turn them into their masters for a reward. The journey itself was very harrowing. As she approached freedom and crossed into Pennsylvania, she recalls being filled with a feeling of relief and awe and recalled this experience years later. Listen to Harriet's words. She said, when I found I had crossed the line into Pennsylvania, I looked at my hands to see if I was the same person. There was such a glory over everything. 
The sun came like gold through the trees and over the fields. I felt like I was in heaven. From then on, that's when most people become familiar with Harriet's story. Harriet devoted her life to getting this message of freedom across hostile and dangerous enemy lines at all cost with sparing no expense to her own personal safety. This message of good news she considered to be worth it and felt compelled and felt a duty to share it with as many who would listen regardless of the cost. And it came at a tremendous personal cost to Harriet. This is where the story is really going to begin to overlap our text that I'm going to get into in a moment and overlap Paul's words in this passage. She was plagued by seizures and blinding headaches her whole life from the head wound she suffered as a child. Her husband left her for another woman while she was engaged in freeing other slaves. She was turned on by some of the people that she sought to save. She was stolen from and defrauded by the people that she invested to, to be able to fund the work of the Underground Railroad. She was blamed when the perilous evacuation plans went poorly, and she was constantly stolen from, beaten, and by all accounts, suffered tremendous pain her entire life. Harriet could have just enjoyed her newfound freedom. When she took off on that 90-mile trek through the Underground Railroad, nobody would have blamed her if she got to the other side and never looked back. Would anybody here blame her? After going through that life, once she finally tasted the sweet taste of freedom, who could have said anything if Harriet said, I will never under any circumstances subject myself to going back into this hostile territory? On the surface, she would have been happier if she just took advantage of her freedom and went about her life rather than devoting it to freeing others from bondage. But look with me at verses 25 through 29. It says, Of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of his mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all of his energy, that he powerfully works within me. Like Paul, Harriet knew that she had a stewardship, that she had been entrusted with something that was special and supernatural, and she had a stewardship to tell others to whom the concept of freedom was still nothing but a mystery. It was faint whispers that would make its way through a song or through a message carried through the Underground Railroad. And because of the importance of the message and the mission and the freedom that came as a result, she risked losing everything and never got to engage her flesh as a result of taking on this mission. But something that we're going to see at the end of the story when we get to the verses 
particularly the way the story ends in verse 29. For this I toil, struggling with all of his energy that he powerfully works within me. After all the suffering, being devoted to a life of hardship purely for the glory of God and for the sake of others with little personal gain, at the end of Paul's story here in chapter 1, at the end of Mrs. Tubman's story, and at the end of what people thought was Jesus' story when they took this prophet from Nazareth and nailed him to a cross, the good news was oh so sweet that the suffering was in fact worth it. Not only worth it, but as we begin to look at our passage, Paul says that he rejoiced in the suffering. Look again at verse 24. I rejoice in my sufferings. He rejoiced in the suffering because of how much he believed in the cause for which he was suffering for. I mean, honestly, he was writing this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, folks. So he's not just saying that he rejoiced in the suffering. This is the Holy Spirit telling Paul under inspired and divine scripture, communicate the fact that you rejoice in this. How much do you have to believe in a cause to be able to say those words and for them to actually be true? I rejoice in my sufferings. Wow, right? That's a big statement. I think statements like that are almost stripped from their gravity because Paul makes them so much that it can also it can become kind of old hat. The man is saying that for nothing of personal gain to himself and only for others and the glory of God, he rejoices in the ability to suffer for these things. And just to be clear, because the sentence construction is a little bit odd here, Paul was not actually rejoicing in the fact that he had to suffer. The suffering was not the cause of his rejoicing. What he's saying is that he was able to find rejoicing in the midst of this suffering. I share this with folks all the time, but even sharing it as often as I do, this is a difficult truth to wrap my mind around. That Paul was able to go through pain and suffering without complaining because he didn't have the illusion that his Christianity was supposed to be void of pain and suffering. Think about that for a second. Think about the details surrounding his salvation. When Paul was riding on that faithful trip to, uh, down the road to Damascus to go and persecute Christians, and Jesus knocked him off of his high horse and said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard to kick against the goads. Then he raises up Ananias and tells him, go lay your hands on this man Saul from Tarsus. And Ananias says, you mean the guy that's killing and persecuting Christians? Yes, that's the man, Ananias, and I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. That was the beginning of his call to faith. Man, so different than some, some contemporary altar calls. Come, come, come to Jesus so that everything can be, so he can make your wildest dreams come true. He gives you, you know, Pedro theology. His altar call was come to Jesus so that you could see how much you get to suffer for my namesake. He said in Philippians 1.29, to you who has, has been granted for the sake of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his namesake. Paul embraced this. He said that his goal in Philippians chapter 3, says, the one thing that I desire 
is that I would know Jesus and the power of his resurrection to share in his sufferings, even being conformed to the image of his death. So Paul saw suffering for the cause of Christ as a pathway to greater glory and a deeper experience with Jesus. And he wanted the intimacy with Jesus so badly that if suffering was the road to get to it, so be it. I just want intimacy with my Savior. That's why he was able to say that he rejoiced in his suffering, not because he's some kind of masticus that thinks that he had to self-atone for the things that he used to do before coming to Christ, but because he saw suffering as the gateway to a deeper experience with Jesus. And if that's what it took, he welcomed it. I spoke with a nurse recently that told me that one of the main reasons behind the opiate crisis and why the opiate crisis is turning into an opiate shortage in hospitals is that people fundamentally believe that they are not supposed to be in pain. Those are tough words coming from a tough nurse. Generations ago, people understood that pain was part of this life, and they understood the inevitability of it. When you understand that pain is an inevitability. Your greatest cry is no longer do whatever it takes to just make it stop, but instead make me healthy and make it right so that this suffering is not pointless and this suffering is not in vain. Two different approaches, folks. But Paul took it a step further and said, because of the purpose behind the suffering, I'm even able to rejoice in this suffering. It's impossible to rejoice in suffering unless you really believe that you are suffering for a cause that is worth suffering for. The 13 missions that Mrs. Tubman ran, freeing over 70 people and helping them to be able to taste freedom is what made it worth it for Mrs. Tubman to endure hardship until the day she died to be a messenger of that freedom. The Colossian church being able to experience what Paul refers to in verse 27 as Christ in you, the hope of glory, and the maturity that he refers to in verse 28 was the fuel that led Paul to be what he calls in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, an ambassador of reconciliation. Because the cause was big enough. The cause was able to undergird the suffering that came along with it. So one early application from the passage is, is the gospel big enough to you for you to give your entire life to? Is the gospel big enough to you for you to give everything to and not hold back? Is that how big the gospel is to you? If not, do you remember a time what it was? That's what, that's what John was saying in Revelation when he's saying, remember that love that you had at first from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds that you had at first. Like Keith Green said, to obey is better than sacrifice. I don't need your money. I want your life. Is Jesus that big to you? Is Jesus that encompassing to you? Is that how big of a Jesus we worship here at Redeemer Fellowship? Paul spent 23 verses painting a picture with such beautiful 
intricacy of a massive, massive Jesus. If you look at those first 23 verses of Colossians chapter 1, you'd be hard-pressed to find a better picture of the bigness and preeminence of Christ in the Bible. He painted such a masterful picture with such masterful strokes as he tells this story of Christ's bigness and preeminence. The Jesus that Paul preached was huge and all-encompassing. Paul didn't preach a wimpy Jesus. Paul preached a Jesus that was worthy of your everything. Paul preached a Jesus that only had one reaction, all in, all my chips to the middle of the table, big enough to demand my life and big enough for me to rejoice when he demands it. That's how big the Jesus was that Paul preached of. Is that who Jesus is to you? Is Jesus big enough where whatever is going on in your life, it's his right to demand it. It's his anyway. Your life is his. Is that who Jesus is to you? Is he that big? Is he that great? Is he that beautiful? Is he that preeminent? Otherwise, all we have in those first 23 verses is a bunch of theology, folks. If all we get out of those first three, 23 verses is this Jesus is really preeminent, ah, it doesn't really matter, though. What are we doing? All the Christology in the first chapter was not to paint a picture for the purpose of painting a picture. Paul isn't into painting kitsch, folks. This was art that Paul was making. It was painting a picture to captivate your awe, to lead you to say, give me Jesus. That's the only application you're supposed to get to after those first 23 verses. I want to know this Jesus. This is not stained glass Jesus. This isn't religious church Jesus. This is the Messiah, and I want to know him. As you read on in verse 24, he says that he rejoices in suffering for the sake of the Colossians. He says, for your sake. So the cause was worth suffering for. The object of his affection and adoration was worth suffering for. But he also presents the Colossians as a people who are worth suffering for. That's what I meant when I said that Paul gets to where he stops being uber-theological and starts to get very pastoral. Isn't that how you want to believe that your shepherds, your elders, view you? That these are a people that I would be willing to take a bullet for at a moment's notice. He was not only suffering for them. He goes on in the rest of the verse to say that he was suffering on their behalf. Look, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, that in my flesh I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of the body that is the church. This is where the verse, like my mentor was saying, just gets so like, whoo, like in a beautiful kind of way, but it's hard to wrap your mind around. Here's what one commentator said about it. The saying I'm filling up, Greek antiploreo, is filling up what is lacking. In Christ's affliction does not imply that there's any deficiency in Christ's atoning death and suffering on the cross, which would contradict the central message of this entire letter and all the rest of Scripture as well. Christ's sufferings are, in fact, very sufficient, and nothing of one's own can be added to secure salvation. What Paul was lacking 
in Christ's afflictions was the future suffering of all who, like Paul, will experience great affliction for the sake of the gospel. As Paul described in places like 2 Corinthians or Philippians 2.10, where Paul tells the Philippians that Epaphroditus risked his life, same wording here, to complete what was lacking in your service to me. So in saying that he was suffering for them in his flesh, he's saying that he was willing to stand out in front of them and take a shot for his people, much like Jesus Christ did. Could you think of anything more Christ-like than to communicate, I am willing to stand and bridge the gap and be the one that takes a punch that was not intended for me, it was intended for you, but I'm going to absorb it on your behalf because of my love for you. A shot that might not be intended for him, but he demonstrated his Christ-like love and that he was able to take a punch for his children to help them to be able to avoid having to take the shot. And he showed that he was willing to rise to that occasion. This is where the story with Harriet Tubman just helped me so much in interpreting this cryptic but beautiful language of this passage because that's the life that Harriet lived as she just continually said, I am willing to give this life and take shots not intended for me. I'm already free, folks, but I'm willing to go back into bondage and slavery so that those who are not free might know and taste the freedom that God created them for. And what you end up seeing here is one of the most beautiful examples of Christ-likeness and beautiful examples of the gospel that you'll see anywhere in Scripture. So Paul's theology was clear. Sharing in Christ's suffering is sharing in Christ's glory. So Paul was able to embrace suffering. And he was also able to embrace suffering on behalf of the Colossians. You see Paul's pastoral heart here. Before I wrap up in a couple of minutes, I just want to give a brief tangent that was just burning in my heart as a conviction as I read this passage. Pastors should be men who know how to take a punch. If every time a punch comes, the pastor is nowhere to be found because he's the first one in line at the potluck and he's not standing there with the sheep, then he's not a pastor, he's not a shepherd, he's a coward and a sissy. When I look at the quality of men that seminaries, I use the word men loosely, the quality of men that seminaries are churning out these days, it frightens me. They're more theologically astute than the generations that go before them. I've sat with men that could parse Greek in ways that I never could. They could tell you that every sermon that John Piper preached on the book of Romans, but they're the most delicate little snowflakes on the face of the earth, and they melt if one ill word is spoken to them over social media or, God forbid, in person, or, God forbid, they actually have to take a punch where are the man like cool hand Luke who just continues to get knocked down and gets up and says, you'll have to kill me to keep me down. I remember seeing that movie before Christ and seeing it after Christ and saying, that's manhood. Being the mule that says, you will not take me down. And if you do, I'm going to continue to get up because of verse 29. It says it right here. It's not my strength, but the strength of Christ working within me and you're worth it to continue to get up and take a punch on your behalf because that's what Jesus showed me when he said, for the joy that set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the Father. Amen? Amen. 
So when you really love somebody, wouldn't you rather suffer a million times than to see that person suffer? Is there any more hopeless feeling than watching somebody that you love suffering and not being able to do anything about it? Anybody ever been in that situation? I know for me, anytime I've been in it, just give it to me. I'd love to put it on my shoulders rather than see them have to go through that pain. Paul was willing to embrace suffering, filling up what was lacking in his words, both generally and specifically, and willing to take a punch on behalf of these baby Christians. Paul was also willing to take a punch for these Christians because he took his missionary calling to be a stewardship. Look at verses 25 through 28. It says, Of which I became a minister according to the stewardship of God that was given to me for you to make the word of God more fully known, the mystery hidden for ages. What is a stewardship? A stewardship is something that's entrusted to you. It's not something that is given to you. We view things as a stewardship when we know that we're going to have to give an account for that which has been entrusted to us. Paul saw the gospel that was entrusted to him as a stewardship. How much would it help us to live like missionaries in this world if we saw the gospel that was given to us as being entrusted to us as a stewardship. This life is a stewardship that's entrusted to us. We're not our own. We've been bought with a price. As a person embraces this reality, they see their life as a stewardship and they begin to take on what it means to live a life that is no longer my own. When we see the gospel as a stewardship, you know what happens? It's so cool evangelism becomes something that you don't have to be beaten over the head to be able to walk in. We see that we've entered, that that what we've been entrusted with, we've been entrusted with and given freely, not so that we could hide it under a bushel or keep it to ourselves. The gospel was given to us as a stewardship to be able to give away. Christ was made known to us so that we might know him and make him known to others. And then Paul goes on a little bit more about the stewardship. He says that the stewardship was actually to make the word of God fully known to the Colossian church. So he did this with his teaching that we've read in the previous verses, and we'll see as we continue to go through the book in the weeks to come. But in the context, he's showing that he also stewarded the responsibility of making God's word fully known through them through the ministry of suffering. Have any of you ever watched somebody suffer with the grace that only Jesus could provide? And it's almost like reading an open Bible as you just see the glory of God manifested as they are put in the winepress of God's conforming them into his image, and you get to watch Jesus manifested as a result. That's a stewardship, folks. If there was never any time of reeling in the flesh, you don't need to steward. Stewardship, by definition, means that you don't spend everything that you've gotten on yourself or on your flesh because we're stewards and we know that we've been entrusted with it, that we're not owners. What an awesome calling, brothers and sisters. The stewardship of making God's word more fully known. If you're here this morning and you're wondering, what is my purpose in this life, if you want a purpose statement in your life, your purpose statement is that you have been made a divine 
steward of the gospel to make God's word more fully known. Is that an awesome calling or what? Amen. Man, that's what I want to invest a life into, to get to the end of this life and say, this life mattered because I took that stewardship seriously, but not I, but the grace of God with me, 1 Corinthians 15, 10. We've been granted the word of God as a stewardship to make the word of God more fully known to those who do not know, as Paul says in verse 28, to be able to present them mature in Christ, and we continue to proclaim unto that end. And then Paul goes on a little bit more about this stewardship, that it was to make the word of God more fully known, and it takes the willingness to be able to say, my flesh might have to burn a little bit for this. We've been given a message of liberation to help set captives free, and we've been entrusted with the roadmap to that freedom. Like Mrs. Tubman, the reason that Paul was willing to continue to risk his neck and to be able to go across enemy lines over and over is because the message of freedom that he had been stewarded was too great not to risk it. Are you tracking with me on that? The message that you've been entrusted with is too great not to risk it. When you leave here today, the message of the good news of Jesus is too good for you not to risk going across enemy lines like Paul or Harriet Tubman or any other number of people whose shoulders we stand on. And Paul referred to this message of freedom as the mystery here in verse 26. I love that wording. Isn't that beautiful? And couldn't our faith use a little bit more mystery and wonder to it? Sometimes when I'm around those young, theologically astute, arrogant types, I think you could use a little less certainty and a little bit more mystery in your life. And when you realize how big and how beautiful Jesus is, and that he to rescue me from danger interposed his precious blood, how could this not be a beautiful mystery? But why a mystery? And this is where I'll uh, kind of wrap up with because the message of Christ's glorious redemption was something that was carried out differently than anyone could have ever mapped it. That's one reason that it's a mystery. I mean, think about it. Even John the Baptist ended up having to send couriers to Jesus as he sat in a prison awaiting his beheading, saying, are you the one or shall we look for another? And Jesus said, go and tell them what you see, that the blind receive sight the deaf receive hearing, that the lame are able to walk, saying, yes, the Messiah is in your midst. But it was a mystery. It's a mystery that First Peter says that the angels are even mystified by this mystery. It says the angels who beheld the glory of God, they beheld it unbroken since their creation. And they're not able to wrap their beautiful angelic minds around the mystery of the Son of God, beautiful and holy. The picture that you see in Isaiah chapter 6, seated in his throne, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts, that he became a baby to come and rescue the people that defied him and turned their backs to him. It was a mystery. They couldn't understand it. More specifically, the mystery was about the recipients of the message. No one reading the Old Testament would have ever thought that God's plan would have included 
The chosen people rejecting their Messiah and the Messiah graciously turning to the Gentiles to be able to engraft us in as wild olive branches into the tree. Those who were cut off from the promises of Israel, as it says in Ephesians chapter 2, once your enemy, now seated at your table. Didn't we just sing that? What was the conclusion to it? Jesus, thank you, I believe. That's what we were saying. Lover of my soul. I want to live for you. Brothers and sisters, you are the mystery. So what is the great mystery that he proclaimed? Christ in you, the hope of glory, is what verse 27 says. As you come here this morning, you image bearer who have believed on the name of Jesus, Christ is in you, the very hope of glory. And to wrap it up, Paul was saying that this message of being able to tell people the good news of Christ in you, the hope of glory, I'll read his words. He says, For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. All he's saying is, it was worth it. It was worth it for me to toil for this message. It was worth it for me to toil into this end. If you open your life up and see it as a stewardship of the manifold grace of God, you will not get to the end and be disappointed. You will be able to say with Paul in verse 29, it is worth it. So application, the biggest application is Paul was willing to endure great suffering to make sure that you know. So the point of the message, the point of the passage The point of Jesus' ministry was to tell you the good news of Christ in you, the hope of glory. And he was willing to suffer the loss of all things that you might know that. If you're here this morning and you have never believed on the Lord Jesus as your Savior, there have been people for millennia who have been willing to suffer the loss of all things, that you might be able to be here and hear that good news and know him for all of eternity if you just embrace him and ask him into your heart. The second application is just restating the same thing, to get you to stop and think about these words for a second. Christ is in you, the hope of glory. Does that get anybody excited? I mean, Paul's saying, the whole passage is him saying, this is so big that I want to give my life for it, and the more that I suffer, bring it! Because all it's going to do is bring about more glory. Man, makes you just want to shout, glory, hallelujah, thank you, Jesus. I mean, a lot of people that spend the majority of their breath complaining or bemoaning their lot in life, and it would seem pretty incongruent with the life that Paul was saying that he was willing to suffer greatly for you to understand the treasure that you have received. Do you ever stop and just take stock of the treasure that's yours in Christ? Do you see the life that has been given to you in Christ as a stewardship? And then lastly, not so much an application, but a reminder. Christ is in you, the hope of glory. Communion is a celebration that Jesus saw all of this as worth it. So just like Paul said it's worth it, communion is a celebration that Jesus got to the cross, looked at you, loved you so much, and said, you know what? You're worth it. And we're going to celebrate that now. Jesus, thank you that you saw a ragtag bunch of knuckleheads like us and said they're worth it. 
They're worth separation from the Father. They're worth taking on the sins of the world. They're worth being beaten and mocked and scourged. They're worth it to be the treasure, the inheritance that will be given to you, our Father. Lord, we long for that day and we say, even so, come Lord Jesus, come. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.